0: Hey everyone, welcome back to Nutshell Politics this week. I appreciate you guys tuning in. My name is Justin Kenny, and I will be your ruggedly handsome host today as we discuss a special topic that was picked out for this specific month. Now, this was actually a request from a listener, but I thought it was a great idea, and so I decided to incorporate it, and we're gonna be talking about matriarchies throughout history. Now, the reason we're doing this, if you don't know, is that March is considered Women's History Month. So this is a, a month every year that's supposed to highlight the contributions of women to various events in history now this is something that's celebrated in the united states the uk and australia but we see it in several uh, we see variations of this in several other countries as well and so with this being the last monday of march 2019 I thought it would be great to talk about some of the political matriarchies that we've seen in this world throughout history. But before we get too far down that road, I do want to touch a little bit on Women's History Month and just talk about what that is here in the United States specifically, uh, but also kind of how it applies worldwide. So if you go all the way back to, I think, 1911, there was an International Women's Day, and this is where you see... Uh, women's History Month actually traced its beginnings to it. Now, Nowadays, it's celebrated on March 8th every year. It's kind of been a focal point in the movement for women's rights. But we didn't see the month become a, a deal until much, much later. Now, uh, if you go back to February of 1980, we had President Jimmy Carter in the United States, and he issued a special presidential proclamation declaring that the week of March 8th, March 8th is usually, as I said, Uh, International Women's Day so he declared that entire week to be National Women's History Week and so he issued this proclamation and pretty much every year ever since we have seen some sort of proclamation to that uh, same extent. Now in 1987 however Congress passed a law and this was passed in May of 1987 and it was kind of a, a joint resolution to make the whole month of March Women's History Month. Uh, And so this is when we really see it become a a thing in the United States. And so since 1988, US presidents have issued annual proclamations every year, claiming the month of March as Women's History Month. And so we've seen various presidents recognize this in various fashions, but it's been happening ever since 1988. And this in, in 1988 replaced that Women's History Week. So we saw Women's History Week pretty much every year from 1980 until 1988. And then starting in 1988 and onward, we saw presidential proclamations pretty much every year ever since. And every year they give the month some sort of a theme. This year in 2019, the theme is Visionary Women, Champions of Peace and Nonviolence. The United States is not the only country that celebrates this. In Canada, they have a Women's History Month. It came along a handful of years after the United States. It was proclaimed in 1992 and has been celebrated there ever since. And we see it in a handful of other countries as well. Australia started celebrating it in 2000. Uh, the UK started celebrating this in, I think, 2011. Uh, although I think theirs is a little bit uh, more spotty. It's not like an every year thing there. But every year during the month of March, this has become a time for people to kind of reflect back on uh, women throughout history and some of the contributions they've made. Now, we're not going to be doing that specifically in this podcast episode. You get that in a lot of other places. But I thought we could kind of put a little bit of a political spin on this and talk about matriarchal societies throughout history from like a political perspective. So just from a basic definition standpoint, a matriarchy is a social system or a political system in which females hold some sort of power positions in roles of political leadership, lineage, moral authority, privilege, and things like that. Now, for the purposes of this episode, I'm not going to be talking about situations where we have, like say in England, where you have the Queen of England, right? So that is a society in which the royal family is led by a female, but I'm talking more about from like a political or societal structure standpoint. Now, this would also include things like matrilineal societies. I'll include some of those. That's societies where you trace lineage through the the mother, but mostly we're going to be focusing on this from a political or a societal standpoint. Now, matriarchal societies are not that uncommon throughout mythology. We tend to see them as fairly rare in in real life but through mythology there have been quite a few and we're going to start talking about some of the mythological ones and then we'll move into some of the the more real life ones so probably the most famous one that's a matriarchy is the legend of the amazons and the reason this has been in the news is because there was a movie not that long ago that came out about this Am- amazonian community called wonder woman so if you haven't seen the movie it's a superhero movie that came out it's part of the dc comics enterprise but the whole principle here is that the amazons are a female-led society in the in the mythology of the amazons and wonder woman it's really all women but the amazons actually are thought to potentially have a real-life counterparts that they're based somehow in in history now we've struggled to kind of pinpoint where that is a lot of times you will see people place them in the baltic area or in germania Uh, sometimes they're on islands but this principle of of a female-run society where essentially the males were very minimized is pretty common throughout this particular myth and and in in this case, too, you also then see the women being the, the fighters. They're the ones who are hunting on horseback. Uh, they're in wartime. If you saw the movie Wonder Woman, this was depicted in that as well. And so that's probably the most famous mythological matriarchy. But we do have a couple others. There's evidence of uh, mythological matriarchies among the Celts or the Celtics. You see some in South America, South American cultures that have kind of a mythological matriarchal society. Uh, ancient Greece as well. But if we have all of these myths of matriarchal societies what are they really based on? Do we have any evidence of matriarchies that have taken place or are even currently taking place, as we'll get to in a second, in the world that we know? And the answer is yes there are some. Now it kind of depends a little bit on how you define matriarchy. There are some historians that say none of these truly live up to the definition of matriarchy in kind of its extreme form, but we do see certain communities where women were revered or elevated politically and societally now probably um one, one of the most famous ones that, that you may have heard of even if you don't really recognize it is the kingdom of Kush, or the queendom of Kush, i should say now this is an ancient nation out of africa you'll probably heard it more for its other name nubia or the nubians this was a, a historical rival if you go back you know millennia they were one of the rival nations for ancient Egypt. And so they were in this kind of region just south of where we think of Egypt, kind of along the Egyptian border, now in Ethiopia, Sudan, Uh, they actually were in parts of what we consider modern day Egypt as well. And this was an entire society that was ruled by a set of queens. So typically we think of royal families being led by kings or kind of a king and queen counterpart or something to that effect. But Nubia was noted for having a, a series of queens that ruled their their queendom. And in the Nubian or Kush society, we had uh, the family line would be passed down through the maternal side rather than the paternal side. So we're probably more used to the paternal side being passed down when, when people get married, you know, they tend to take the man's last name, the man the man's last name gets passed down, the husband's name gets passed down to the kids in most societies in the world today, especially in kind of Europe is common in the Americas, but in Nubia and in Kush, the family line was passed down through the maternal side. So if you were to track kind of back through your genealogy, you would say you're the son of your mother as opposed to say a lot of ancient cultures that would talk about the son of their father and pass it through the paternal line going up the up the chain but in Cush or Nubia it was passed through the maternal side now probably the most famous event in Nubian or Cush history took place when Augustus Caesar you're probably familiar with that name Augustus Caesar was the emperor of Rome and he lived back uh, in the year 27 BC through about AD so he kind of was alive during the the time of Jesus and the crossover from BC to AD and so he during this time period tried to go in and invade Cush and the queen of Cush at the time completely wouldn't wouldn't hear of it uh I'm gonna butcher her name it's it's a complicated one uh Kandake Amaneshacato. I'm gonna get go with that. Uh, so she actually was the queen at the time of Cush and she suited up and led her troops into battle. Uh, she rode a chariot into battle and actually kicked out the Roman invasion led by Augustus Caesar and managed to broker some sort of peace treaty that was actually quite favorable between Cush and Rome, and they lived I don't say happily ever after, but they they managed to thrive alongside the Roman Empire for a long time now the Nubian civilization is actually considered one of the earliest civilizations that we have any record of in all of ancient Africa we can actually trace its history going back at least to 2500 BC and this whole time was not led by the kingdom of Kush the which I'm talking about now there were several kind of kingdoms or queendoms that kind of it went through over time Uh, the kingdom of Kush conquered the area in about 800 or so BC and they lasted until about 350 AD, so they had about a thousand year, actually a little over a thousand year rule in the area of Nubia. Eventually, though, this civilization of Nubia does start to fade. There were a lot of internal rebellions that were taking place, not particularly happy with how it was being run, and again, over a thousand year period, these type of things tend to crop up, and they were also weakened by years and decades and centuries even of fighting with Egypt and kind of the ancient Egyptians. Again, they were probably the biggest rival or one of the biggest rivals anyway with what we think of as ancient Egypt. And so eventually we start to see them weaken. A lot of internal rebellion weakens them further and they start to kind of erode from within. And eventually Kush declines. A lot of its its economy starts to fail as well. A lot of the industries that they were so good at for a long time started to decline in usage. And eventually, the kingdom of Kush does fall. It's taken over by uh, the kingdom of Aksum. And the kingdom of Aksum is, or what should say was, a very powerful kingdom in kind of northern Ethiopia. And so eventually, they kind of do come in and take over Nubia, and, and the kingdom of Kush falls. Nowadays, this ancient kingdom of Kush in the region of Nubia still persist to this day. You're probably much more likely to have heard of Kush or Nubia than you are of Aksum or some of these others in, in the area. So they were considered to be very powerful and they have a kind of a long-lasting legacy. Their queens were very well revered in the time. They were actually the ones who got their own pyramids. When we think of pyramids, we think of the pharaohs of Egypt, but the queens of Cush actually got their own pyramids that were filled with treasure as well. They were they all got the the title Kandake. I mentioned earlier uh, Kandake Amanishakato. Amanishakato is actually the name of that queen. Kandake is like a title that essentially referred to all of the queens of this particular empire. But these sort of warrior queens who were again not unknown to be running into battle or riding into battle alongside their troops but also ruling their empire, they do eventually kind of start to fade and so the Kingdom of Nubia obviously doesn't exist anymore today but this is probably one of the most famous historical examples of a matriarchal society. Now I should mention the reason they tend not to be considered a matriarchy by some by some historians is that they were not a society that was ruled exclusively by queens. Uh, They did have a couple kings that kind of mixed in every once in a while, but they did have a very unusually high number, especially for this time period, and that the portrayal of what we think of as like the Nubian queen has lasted even through to this day. Now outside of the Nubians or the Kushites, there was another ancient group or a society or a tribe, if you will, that was ruled by women. But there's a lot, a lot known about them. So I only want to touch on them for a minute, but they were called the Satones or the Suevi. This was a, a group in so, somewhere near Scandinavia, kind of up in Northern Europe of Germanic descent uh, in the first century BC. So they kind of lived, again, a little over 2000 years ago, somewhere near Scandinavia. And this was a tribe that... Resembled another Germanic tribe of the area, and they're frequently compared to them. Except their distinguishing characteristic is that they have. I'm going to quote here from Tacitus. So, if you know Tacitus, he's a, a famous historian from way back when, and he said that the Setones or the Suevi have something called "quod femina dominatur." That's Latin. It's a a phrase that means... Well, it could mean a couple of different things. But traditionally, it's, it's meant that their ruler was either a woman at the time or they were a tribe where the women always ruled. And that distinction has been debated a lot over the years it's thought by most historians nowadays that it meant the latter that it was a tribe where women always ruled and the reason they go to this is because they found evidence that the romans also referred to this people as the land of women and that you wouldn't make a whole lot of sense if it was only one ruler who at the time happened to be female but the sutton to the suave were likely a very matriarchal society. Now, not a whole lot is known about them. Uh, we do know other tribes in the area, similar ones, the other Germanic Celtic tribes, had women in places of spiritual and political power. Uh, so they, the religions of the area were frequently run by women or had women in high positions, and other tribes had women in high political power. And so to say that this particular one was, quote, femina dominator, means that they probably had it even more so, so they probably were very matriarchal. Now, outside of that, one of the only other things we can really say about the Suevi is that they are one of the very early ancestors of what we think of as Sweden today. But beyond that, it gets very tricky. Uh, Again, we're going back over two millennia, and... In some ancient languages, there are several tribes that have very, very similar names, and so it's hard to know which tribe is which. And there's just not a whole lot of documentation that has lasted until today about the Suebi or the Suevi. But there are a couple theories about this. Some people say that they migrated and ultimately ended up kind of in the Portugal area, Uh, others say that they you know moved down just to where we think of Germany. Others, again, say they have a lot of heritage in Sweden. Now, we do have some evidence that the Suevi Kingdom ultimately was defeated by the Visigoths, which were another group at the time, uh, kind of in the 500s AD. But as I said, because of the the similar names with a lot of different tribes in the area it's hard to know if this was the matriarchal society the land of women as the romans called it or if this was a different uh, Suevi tribe and so that's about all i can tell you about the Suevi. Uh, we don't even really know what happened to them uh, but it is quite likely that this was one of those ancient tribes that was run pretty exclusively by women But with that, let's move forward and talk about some of the ones that maybe exist today. But before we get into the modern groups, let's go ahead and take a quick 60-second commercial break, and I'll be with you guys back on the other side in just a minute. Hey guys, welcome back. Thanks so much for sticking with me through that short commercial break. We're going to be diving right back into matriarchal societies, but we're going to be focusing now on the last half of this episode on groups or nations that are still around today. There are obviously not many, um, but we want to talk about ones that have existed more in modern times. Uh, one that kind of comes to mind immediately, and again, this is going to be a little bit of a definitional thing as to how you define matriarchy. But the Iroquois were quite known for how, imp- or for the level of importance they placed on women in societies. Now. A lot of times their leaders would be men, but in the Iroquois nation, particularly in the kind of the American Northeast, uh, where they lived for so long, there was a group of, I forget what the the phrase they used, but essentially elders that were all mothers. So particularly mothers held a, a significant power in the Iroquois who were a, kind of above the leadership. They were kind of like a, a council that was able to appoint leaders, If necessary, they could remove leaders. And so even though a lot of times those leaders would be male, this kind of group or council of elder mothers would be above them and able to kind of, I said, point or remove some of these leaders. We also know in the Iroquois that this was one of those matrilineal societies that I mentioned earlier where lineages got traced through the mother's side of genealogy. Now, it's hard to say that the Iroquois were truly matriarchal. They were probably more matriarchal, which means that they had more of a focus on women. They had more kind of an egalitarian setup where both men and women could be leaders. And this was somewhat common among Native American tribes. There were a lot of tribes that would have female leadership. But the Iroquois in particular seemed to put a higher emphasis on women in political power. And there are specific tribes too, both within the Iroquois and a couple others as well, that where it was kind of this exception, sorry, not exception, expectation that the line of leaders would be women. There is one one particular tribe, and I'm totally blanking on the name. I know I've seen it somewhere that had a, you know had a long line of women leaders, and there was kind of this expectation, even to this day, that future leaders would also be women. Now, outside of the Native Americans, there are a couple other tribes to look at. Again, when we're talking matriarchies in modern-day society, there really aren't many. Uh, So we're looking usually at small Native groups. Probably one of the more fascinating ones is a group called the Mosuo. This is a society in China, uh, particularly in kind of the southwest region. So Mosuo, spelled M-O-S-U-O, Mosuo. This is another one of those matrilineal societies where the family name kind of goes through the women. Women are the ones who run the households, and by household here, I don't necessarily mean household in in the Western sense. It's more in like a tribal sense where there's several families under one household, and then the head kind of matriarchy of each little household runs the village, and then the head of that village, or head of multiple villages, runs the region kind of by again, kind of a council, kind of like the, the Iroquois did. Now, the Masuo are a very specific ethnic group. They're very small. They're kind of on the border between China and Tibet. Now, they do refer to themselves as a matriarchal society. Uh, they've been around for thousands and thousands of years, one of the oldest societies in the world, and they're probably the last, one of the last true matriarchies. Again, you'll have some historians or, or feminists who will cite distinctions and try to to claim that it's not really they don't really exist but this is about as close as you're going to get because in the Mosua society you know the women I should say the men really only have two roles uh you see men who take care of livestock and fishing so a lot of the food preparation as well as the livestock come from the men but other than that you women do all the work they produce the household goods they look look after the kids and really interestingly, they do something in the Mosuo society that's called a walking marriage. It's it's really kind of strange, but essentially, when the when two people get married, a woman and a man get married, they don't end up living together. The wife will stay under her mother's household, and the husband with his, and the kids will stay with the mother's side, and so they get raised into the, into the mother's household, and the the married couple again, only really meet at night to see each other. They don't interact much during the day. They kind of go back to their own families, their own responsibilities. And you really don't see divorce or anything here. And the children are always belong to the mother's family and take the mother's last name. And again, it's it's matrilineal. So the idea of like an absent father doesn't phase them because they're always raised by the mother and take the mother's side and all of this. And so it's kind of a really strange society. We don't, Again, they're really the only culture like this particular one. Um, now, we are seeing the Mosuo kind of family structure start to fracture recently. Again, they've been around for thousands of years, but as the world is becoming more and more globalized, we're seeing a lot of Mosuo children move and leave home, um, usually moving to bigger cities across China. And so the Mosuo culture and way of life is starting to, to vanish a little bit. But they are probably one of the last cultures that's really built around the the mother and the kind of the matrilineal focus in modern day society now outside of the musuo there are very few cultures in modern society where we see women in positions of political power extensively in like a true matriarchy form Uh, there are quite a few that are matrilineal and i'll talk about those in just a second the only other one where there's a lot of political power would be a group in ghana this is a, a people group called the akan or akan i'm not quite sure how you pronounce that but they're in Ghana, and so the Akan kind of social structure is built around the idea of, again, a kind of a matrilineal society, but within the kind of matrilineal family, this is where you get your identity, again, your last name, uh, your inheritance gets passed down through through the mother, wealth, anything like that, and politics. Now, the Akan are kind of an unusual variation on a matriarchy because all of the founders are female but the, the leadership positions within society are male and, and so you, again people point at this and say it's not really a matriarchy but the leadership positions that are controlled by men are inherited roles they're not roles that were taken over or elected or anything like that they're inherited and that inheritance gets passed down through a man's mother or or his sisters potentially and so, oh, and then obviously through their children potentially as well. So, it's not so this inherited role does go to men, but it's not passed down male to male, it's passed down to another male through, through a female in the society. And so, while the men do hold those leadership positions, it's really kind of an undergirding or a backing of, of a matrilineal culture and matrilineal s- society. Now, outside of that, again, there are a handful of other matrilineal societies. You have the the Bribri, which is an indigenous group of people uh, in Costa Rica. Again, very matrilineal. Women are the only ones who inherit land and those sorts of things as well. Uh, You have the Garo. These are people in, I think, Tibet or near Tibet, I should say. I think they're in India, up by Tibet, where inheritance gets passed down matrilineally. And so, a lot of these type of societies, you will say, is are, are matrilineal, but not technically matriarchal, because the men kind of run the politics side of things. But there's a heavy, heavy emphasis on kind of the, the female and the mother in particular. Uh, but the last one I wanted to kind of finish up with today is a group here in the United States uh, that we you may may have actually heard of. They are the Hopi people. So this is a a group of people, kind of an independent tribe of the Pueblos that are near the Grand Canyon. And so you may have actually heard of them. If you ever go out to visit the Grand Canyon, you you can go and see some of these ancient Hopi lands and some of these ancient villages. It's actually really interesting. Uh, They have one village in Hopi territory that is the oldest continually occupied settlement in the entire United States. They consider themselves the very first inhabitants of the of the Americas. This is a very ancient culture. Uh, now, the Hopi society is, again, based very much on kind of matrilineal focus. Everything gets passed down through the maternal side, through mothers. Uh, women are the ones who kind of own land, who own livestock. They're the ones who are in charge of all the things that run the Hopi economy. Nowadays, this is mostly arts and crafts that they sell to tourists and things like that. And so they they run a lot of the economic stuff. Men are in charge of kind of the farming side. Food, farming, sheep, livestock, like we saw in a couple of these others. But this is probably one of the most matrilineal or closest we have to a matriarchal society in the Americas today. And unlike the Mosuo this is one that's likely to continue. The Hopi tribe is fiercely, fiercely protective of their way of life. We don't really see much intermarriage and in fact marriage outside of the tribe is very, very rare. It's almost unheard of to have anybody join the tribe as well through adoption or something else to that extent. And these customs have lasted pretty much unchanged for, for thousands of years. Again, you'd be hard pressed to call the Hopi a matriarchal society because of the political power aspect, but they are very heavily matrilineal, as this is how their entire society is organized into various clans built around the mother and the mother's family. Even when you get marriage among the Hopi, children become members of the wife's clan, not the not the husband's, and children get named by the women. They get named by the they actually get named by the father's clan, but by the women in the father's clan. And then become a member of the wife's clan, and so even when the the mother or the father's side has an as a say, it's the women on the father's clan that have that say. Now the Hopi are surrounded almost entirely, I believe. Uh, they, they actually might be entirely by the Navajo, which are probably you're more familiar with. Navajo are probably a little bit more famous in the United States, but the Hopi probably aren't too far behind. And if you're from this part of the country, in kind of that Southwest, especially anywhere close to the Grand Canyon, I'm sure you've heard of them. It's actually a pretty fascinating society if you ever wanted to go check it out. You can actually visit some of their their locations. Again, they rely pretty heavily on tourists with arts and crafts and things like that. It's one of their largest sources of income, I believe. But they are probably the best known case of a matrifocal society for those of us here in the United States. And with that, I think we're going to go ahead and close things out with the Hopi as the last group. I hope that was really interesting for you. It was kind of an interesting topic for me to look into. I would heard about some of these groups, others I had to kind of look up for myself. I thought it was really fascinating. And I think this is uh, an appropriate way to kind of honor Women's History Month where we talk about some of these uh, societies where women have particularly high levels of power and importance throughout history as well as today. So if you enjoyed that, let me know. And if you'd like to get in contact with me, For any purpose, you can follow me on Twitter. My username there is R underscore Kinney. Find me, follow me there. I'd be happy to continue this conversation or any others with you going forward. If you'd like to find me on Facebook, my name is J. Robert Kinney. You can find my uh, author page. I write fiction novels. I have two mystery novels that are out, one called Precipice and one called Splintered State. Please go check those out on Amazon. Uh, They're both available on there for both paperback and Kindle. And if you'd like to get in contact with me to talk about advertising on the podcast or to support the podcast in any way, I do have a Patreon account you can check out or you can just get in contact with me. I'd be happy to talk with you more about that possibility. But with that, I think we're going to close out the last episode of March. So thanks so much for listening. This is Nutshell Politics. My name is Justin Kinney and I am out in three, two, one.